Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This is the second week of my interview with Chris Tritico. Now, normally I say, go check out the different episodes. you got all kinds of fun ones. Um, some may not be for you. Hopefully, you, know, you get something out of all of them. Um, but this week definitely is one that you had to listen to last week. Uh, it's kind of a, a, it was a two-parter. and We kind of ended on a, a cliffhanger. So if you're listening to this and you didn't listen last week, stop it right now. Go listen to last week's episode with Chris Tritico and come back, listen to this one. It'll mean a lot more to you. Um, but of course, this week I'm interviewing uh, Chris Tritico, second part of the interview. Uh, Mr. Tritico is an attorney from Texas. His, uh, his big thing is that he was uh, the attorney for Timothy McVeigh, who was the Oklahoma City bomber. Last week, you know, we talked about how he got involved in the case. Um, his first meeting with Timothy McVeigh, um, we talked about just the pressure that came from from being a part of the the trial. We talked about why it's so important to defend you know those who may look to be indefensible, why it's so important for our constitution and our justice system for everyone to get a, a fair defense. Um, it was a really powerful conversation. You know, I've I've heard from from several of you that really really enjoyed the conversation and and got a lot from it. I certainly did too. This week we're going to uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. I'm going to kind of replay that last last part that was kind of uh, a mind maybe kind of a, a little bit of a mind blowing part. I don't know if I would say mind blowing, but definitely something that that threw me for a loop last week where he said that. He introduced his wife to Timothy McVeigh. He's going to explain why that was the case very quickly um, in this very first part. We're going to pick up, you know, kind of right where we left off um, with him saying that and my response and where we uh, where we stopped last week. We're also going to talk about the end of the trial. You know, he was um, convicted and um, sentenced to death. Uh, we're going to talk about the appeals process and how he got reinvolved in that. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, what it, I guess, what it felt like to have um, someone, you know, that you did become close to um, be put to death and, and you know, kind of the, the mental part of that, the emotional side of that, um, because, you know, there's a human element to, to all of this for sure. Um, so I think that's a, an interesting conversation as well. We're also going to talk um, to Chris about a a very tragic incident in his life um, with his his daughter and his daughter um, being being murdered. It was uh, it was something that uh, is just absolutely terrible. Uh, I I love you know kind of hearing Chris talk about his daughter and the wonderful person that uh, she was and the amazing things that his family is doing now to to honor her her life and her legacy. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. I'm going to give him quite a bit of time to kind of talk about his daughter because um, she was she was doing great things and uh, and I, I it, it, there's really just not much to, to say to that. Just a, a terrible terrible 
uh, thing. So I really appreciate him opening up and sharing about that. Uh, it did change kind of his his you know his his approach and his aspects of uh, his profession and and who he represents now. Um, so really appreciate him talking about that. This was an amazing second half of the conversation. I'm sure you enjoyed that first half. This is, I would say it's a better it's better than the first half. Um, so I know you're going to enjoy this. Again, if you're still listening and you didn't listen to last week, again, go check out last week because that is uh, kind of the, the foundation of everything for, for this week. Um, but uh, without further ado, here is the second part of my interview with Chris Tritico. And right before the trial ended, I flew um, Debbie and the kids up to uh, Denver. And I brought, not the kids, but I brought Debbie over to the courtroom and introduced her to Tim and she shook his hand. And um, she, um, when, when she, uh, later on, I just had, I had to go to work. So she sat and watched the trial that day. And that night I said, what'd you think? She said, well, he smiled at me. I said, what the hell did you think he was going to do? <laughs> That that's I, I don't know I don't exactly that that may be the one thing I don't know exactly how to take that you yeah. that you introduced you introduced your wife and and him I don't know that's that maybe th- that throws me for a little bit of a loop. Well, I I thought it was important that she meet the guy that I had just spent half a year with. <laughs> that makes that I, I understand that. So in in kind of wrapping up the trial, this is something that kind of just really I guess threw me for a, another loop was, um, you know, the, the lead, the lead, uh, lawyer, Stephen Jones, like you, you were talking about before kind of his big thing in the defense and, and kind of what he threw out there is that there was a lot more people working on this than just, uh, you know, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. So he mentioned, you know, that there's probably people that got away with, with parts of this, you didn't seem to necessarily maybe prescribe to that same thing, but talk a little bit about that. Well, so my, my role in the case was forensics. And so I didn't have to buy into that. And, and I, I didn't think that that was a good defensive uh, plan uh, because if you prove that Tim is one person in a greater conspiracy, you still put him in the middle of a conspiracy to blow up a building. And he still gets the death penalty. And so I don't I don't know how that wins the case. Uh, it's not mitigation in a, in a conspiracy case. It's not mitigation. And so I didn't think it was helpful, but I didn't have to deal with it because it didn't affect what I was doing. And so I, I just said, if you all want to do it, it doesn't affect what I'm doing. Run with it. But I had made my objection to it and I told him why. And that was their business. Yeah. So what when you're obviously you didn't know, you know, probably most of the other attorneys on the case, you didn't know Stephen Jones beforehand. Um, you weren't the a woman like he wanted to, to begin with. So I just wonder, you did spend so much time together. You kind of were uh, kind of went to, to, to battle together and, and, and got a lot of scars together from it. What does that relationship look like going forward? Obviously everything can be different, but is that kind of kind of have bonded you together or is that just created, you know, friction because of all the high stakes and you and it's not something that's that's uh, put you in put you in the same room much since? Well, um, you know, Stephen and I live in different states and so we don't we don't talk very often, but we've sent cases to each other over the years uh, yeah. if, if the need arose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have any problem with Stephen. I think he's a 
he's a good litigator. Um, I, that I did not agree with that strategy does not make him a bad lawyer. It's just a different, different thought process. Um, it, you know, it doesn't, it, it, it's not anything. It, it's just the way it is. And so uh, we, we get along fine. I haven't talked to him in several years. I, I think I may have talked to him around the time a racehorse passed, but um, uh, a few years ago, but um, it's, it, we don't have an estranged relationship. We just don't, we don't talk regularly. We're, we're friends. I got you there for sure. How long were you in, involved with this? Obviously you've mentioned it a couple of times. There's no surprise that the end of this trial happened where, you know, he was convicted and, and sentenced to, to death. Um, how long were you involved after that? During the interview that I had watched with him, um, he was, you know, starting an appeals process back to that picture because he thought that had painted the, the jury as a, a bias right out of the gate from kind of reading, I don't think he decided to continue on with his appeals, but how long were you involved? Did you stop at this, at this case or were you involved past, past it? So I, my role ended after the motion for a new trial, um, for the, for the direct case. And then they appointed new lawyers for the appeal and for the direct writ of habeas corpus, uh, as they should in a capital murder case, you shouldn't have the trial team do those two things because no, no trial lawyer is going to claim he was ineffective. And you have to have, if you're going to claim, if there's an ineffective claim, it has to be another lawyer to do that in the writ of habeas corpus. And so I was fine with that. Um, a good friend of mine, Nathan Chambers, a good friend now, Nathan Chambers was appointed to do for sure the writ. I'm not sure if he did the direct appeal. Uh, and that's where I met Nathan was working on the writ when he and his co-counsel came to see me in Houston. Um, and they had filed some, some claims against me. And I, we talked about it and asked me, if, he asked me if I agreed and I said, well, no, I don't. But, um, you know, if you think that's, that's the case, then go for it. I'm, I'm not going to stand in the way. I'm not going to agree with it, but I'm not going to stand in the way of Tim getting a new trial and I'll come and testify uh, in the, in the writ hearing, but I'm not going to sign an affidavit saying I was ineffective. Um, but you can, you can cross examine me and, mm -hmm. and we'll see what happens. Um, and, and then, um, right before, and I gave him a copy of my file, uh, what I had the day before the writ hearing, they dropped all the claims against me. Mm -hmm. Um, then um, Tim, uh, at the last minute, dropped his appeal. Uh, and I, I didn't have anything to do with this. He was talking with uh, Rob Nye, who was a wonderful, wonderful man. He and I had become best friends. Rob died a few years ago of uh, pancreatic cancer, um, but he was just a great guy. And uh, it turns out that... Um, Tim made the decision that if the case was reversed, he would have to spend the rest of his life at Supermax, and he didn't want to do that. And, um, and so uh, he would rather just move forward with the execution than uh, win the case on appeal. And, and that's what happened. They, they stopped the appeal and the writ at that point. Shortly after that, 
the government announced that they had not turned over 10 boxes, 10 bankers boxes of paperwork to the defense. That's when I was reappointed. Me, Rob Nye and, and Nathan Chambers were reappointed to file a um, brief on whether or not the um, execution could go forward, given that the government had not turned over these 10 boxes. So we all flew to Denver. Actually, we flew to Tulsa where Rob's, Rob's office was, and we started working on it. And it turned out that it was 100 boxes of material we had never seen. Well, now it's a real task because we can't go over 100 boxes in the amount of time we have before the execution date. It's only about two weeks. So we um, gin up a motion to stay execution and uh, drafted up and I fly to Denver. Uh, it took us about two days. I flew to Denver that night and filed it with the uh, Judge Chamber, Judge uh, Mache. And the other guys met me there and we had a hearing and uh, he denied it. So we prepared another brief in the Tenth Circuit and we worked all night on that. And I took it over to a uh, Kinko's and dropped it off about 11 o'clock at night. And I told a guy I need, you know, 25, 30 copies, maybe 40 copies. And I said, I'm going to be here at 8 a.m. to pick them up. And I told him what I wanted, how I wanted them bound and everything. I said, can you have this done? He said, yes, sir. I said, don't lie to me. I need this by 8 a.m. He said, yes, sir, I'll have it. I walked in at 8 a.m. and it was still sitting there. And I called the guy over and I said, why is this sitting here? He said, well, we haven't gotten to it yet. I said, I told you I need this by 8 a.m. He said, well, what's the rush? I said, this is Timothy McBay's effing appeal. I said, you get this goddamn thing done right now. And he goes, oh, my God. <laughs> he grabs his manager and they, they, they whipped it out pretty quick. Um, yeah, nobody looked at it. Timothy McVeigh, right on the, right on the label. Um, and so I went over and filed that. And while the Tenth Circuit was thinking about it, um, Tim changes his mind again. And I, I think, and all of us thought, that we were going to win that. We were going to get a stay at least long enough to see what was in the 100 boxes. And our argument was simple. What difference does it make? Let us look. It may, it may amount to nothing. It may amount to a lot. But giving us time to look at it doesn't hurt the justice system. Right. But failing to let us look at it is the miscarriage of justice that causes people not to have faith in our Constitution. And that's what they failed to do right there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I understand that for sure. And you, you talked about how he changed his mind and didn't want to go through the appeal. Kind of leads into, I guess, one, one of the final questions when, when it comes to this case. And again, obviously, attorney-client privilege, you're, you're going to be able to, to say what you, you can say. But I just wonder about any kind of remorse for what happened. And the reason why I asked that question is something that is on public record. That is that same, same interview that I'm talking about with him. And, you know, he was asked 
you know, in, in your life, if you could do anything over again, would, was there anything you would do? And he said, there's nothing in his life he could think about that he would do over again. So that doesn't really speak to, to remorse, but I wanted to, to give you a, a chance to answer that. So I, I can tell you without violating the attorney client privilege, I never asked him if he felt remorse uh, about, uh, about this thing, because it, it's not, it's, it's not a question that, that helps me in helping him. Hmm. Um, it actually taints me in helping him. Um, but I can say this, there's a book that he participated in, in with the uh, two writers from the Buffalo news. I think that's the name of the newspaper. And in that book, he said that he had no idea there was children. There was a daycare center in that building. And I think that was a very telling statement. Uh, And that's the closest thing that you're going to get to uh, Tim talking about something like that. And uh, I think that was a truthful statement from him. Yeah. Yeah. So the real final question with this, and this is just, uh, you can kind of, you can kind of put it towards this case or, or any case that maybe would have the, the death penalty. I don't know whether you've ever tried any others, but being so close to this, obviously you, you introduced him to your, to your wife. What was that time in, in 2000, I think it was one or 2003, one of the two that he was executed. What was, I mean, was, I, I don't know. I don't know what, what, what's the feelings like on, on your end? Obviously you're, you understand that there was a, a, a huge thing and, and your personal opinions of the death penalty doesn't necessarily matter, but just from a personal standpoint of knowing the person, knowing that he could have picked a different path. What was, what was that like for you emotionally? So this was, uh, we had been working for over 30 days, seven days a week on, on this now and traveling all over the country, working on this case. And we were all exhausted and we had been in Terre Haute for, about four or five days uh, preparing for the final part. I'd seen Tim the day before, uh, talk to him. And it was uh, my first uh, execution, first client executed. And it was a hard day for me. Uh, I've since had another one executed. And the, the second one was the final one for me. I, I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't, I can't handle uh, watching people die. Um, but it was a really rough day. Um, the circus-like atmosphere, um, and I'm not jumping on the media, it's, but they're doing their job, but it's just this circus-like atmosphere and, and it's, it's a frenzy, a feeding frenzy, and, and there's questions coming at you from every direction and it was, uh, it was depressing and when I wasn't in the death chamber when, when he was executed. Um, Rob Nye and Deborah were, he had um, selected them uh, as he should have. Um, and I was, I was f- perfectly fine with that. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a very sad, emotional, hard thing to go through, uh, to be out there and answer those questions and try to try to stay professional. And um talk about this case, you know, for the last time. Um, and, and then they're asking you, you know, how do you feel? And they're, what they're doing is trying to get you to cry. And it's, it's pretty difficult. 
Yeah, I, I understand that for sure. So let's you you kind of just mentioned it there about uh, you know your decision not to to continue on definitely with with capital murder cases, but I believe you decided not to to do much when it comes to murder at all anymore. Talk a bit, little bit about that decision. Well, uh, a year ago, year ago December, uh, my oldest daughter Maria was the the victim of a murder, and uh, she and her fiance uh, were on the beach in Florida where, where they lived. And it was just three weeks from their wedding. And uh, two gangs were, were showed up over 200 yards away from them, unbeknownst to them and their friends and got into a fight and started shooting at each other. And a stray bullet hit my daughter in the head and killed her. And it, um, it's a big change, a sea change for me in my, my life and my, my family's life and certainly her fiance's life. And as I have looked at, at my career and the things I've done, I've, I've decided that um, I'm going to ease out of, of the violent cases um, and, and not do them anymore. I, as I said earlier, if, if I can't, if I don't feel like I can do my very best I'm not going to do it at all. And I, I feel as strongly as I did the day I started 34 years ago that everybody deserves the best defense that they can get. But I just don't feel that I'm that person anymore because I can't stand up for somebody in a crime of violence with my daughter's murder on the back of my mind. And I just don't know that I can ever get over that. Yeah. No, I think and so I've decided to retire from that. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's understandable. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make this interview any more upsetting. Obviously that's a, a, a no, huge, huge thing, but I also, I do want to give you just a, a, an opportunity because we did briefly meet Maria in, you know, that the in defense documentary, definitely an a, amazing, uh, well-spoken person. I believe she was in, in the art scene. Talk a little right. bit of, about her. I mean, we talked so much about all these other people, but I want I, I don't want to just talk about her murder. So, I want you to tell me about Maria. Maria was, a she was a bright shining light. Um, she went to, um, Texas state university here in San Marcos. Texas and earned two bachelor's degrees, uh, one in photography and one in metalsmithing, which I didn't know what the hell that was. I thought it was welding. Um, she turned out to be jewelry making and she left Texas state and went to the, uh, instant art Institute of Chicago and earned a, um, a master's degree in art therapy. I didn't know what that was either. But that's where you use art to assist people with their problems and their issues. And the art helps them bring out the talk about the problems. She got that degree. When I was talking with her one day about Tim McVeigh, I didn't know this until the um, till we made the show uh, in defense of. 
And but she got the uh, art therapy degree because we were talking one day about Tim McVeigh. And I said, honey, behind the crime is a real human being. And all you have to do is dig a little deeper and you can find this human being and you can help them. I don't remember saying that. I don't remember having the discussion, but she did. And that was her catalyst to go into the Art Institute of Chicago and got that art therapy degree. And with that art therapy degree, she treated veterans with PTSD. She treated young ladies who were stuck in sex trafficking and helped them learn how to get out of that and get their own businesses. Her and her friends created a 501c3 and went to Haiti and helped young ladies who whose families forced them into prostitution to earn money and helped them learn how to build their own, make their own businesses to get out of prostitution. She also spent some time at the Cook County Jail in Chicago treating prisoners, inmates, the Cook County Jail. That's the kind of lady she was. She started making jewelry and her jewelry was just starting to take off. She, um, she made, um, she entered three pieces in the first jewelry week in New York. And she called me and said that um, she had done this. I'd never heard of jewelry week. Turns out it was the first one. And she said, I was hoping all, that one of them would get accepted. They accepted all three. And I said, well, honey, that's great. You're going to go, aren't you? And she said, well, I can't afford it. And I said, no, you're going. And so we bought her and Chad, her fiance tickets and said, you go. And Debbie, my wife, and I met him there for the show. And, and it was great. And she got so much exposure. And then she got invited to shows all over the country. And her, her jewelry was getting real exposure all over the country. She was getting invited everywhere. She had been named about a month before she was killed. She had been named the next CEO of the the Lighthouse Art Center where she and Chad worked in Florida. And then she was killed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you, you sharing for sure. I mean, obviously a, a, a life taken way too soon, way short, and there's not really much, there's, there's not really condolences I can give for that, but uh, well, can I, I say, can I say one more thing? Absolutely. Debbie and I have uh, created in her memory and her honor, the, Maria Tritico project. Um, it's Maria Tritico, uh, Maria Tritico project.com. We're just getting it kicked off, but um, there's a landing page there. And uh, hopefully we'll have some events and some things coming up uh, later this year. And so uh, anyone who wants to join us and help us, we're going to, we're going to fund the things that were important to Maria. And we hope to have this up and running and sustain uh, the things that were important to our daughter. Absolutely. Yeah. What I was going to say is it's evident that, you know, she made a, a huge impact and I, I love what you're, you're mentioning because you're, you're keeping that, that impact going. So that's, that's really special. I, I like that a lot. Uh, I want to kind of just kind of wrap things up a bit. Obviously we, we left you in 2001, you've done a, a lot of, a lot of things since then. How has, you know, this case impacted the rest of your career and then what have you what have you, I guess, what have you been up to since then? 
Well, it certainly had a big impact on my, my career. Um, it, um, it got me a, uh, a three radio shows um, and, and then uh, a television gig that I've been doing for the last, I don't know, 13, 14 years here locally. Uh, and then the in defense of was all, all that was a direct result of uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. And, and of course, my, my working on, on television and working at it. But all the interviews that I did um, uh, after that trial um, uh, helped me with that. But the boost to my career uh, is uh, immeasurable. Um, so what I've been doing since, uh, I think the, the, the biggest case uh, that I did since then was a 10-year-old boy who was accused of and convicted of uh, murdering his father. He um, shot his dad six times in the back when he came to pick him up for visitation. And uh, my partner and I took that case. And the, um, it was a crazy case. Uh, the parents hated each other and it was a divorce gone bad. And I don't want to go through all of it, but the, the mom was uh, the primary culprit in convincing the kid to do it. Nobody could prove it. And the mom is the one who hired me. After she hired me, she told me she didn't have the money. And I get down to court and the parents of the deceased bring a lawyer. Well, about a week, a week later, the parents of the deceased have gotten custody of the defendant. And then they bring a lawyer in to sub me out. And they, the parents of the, of the victim want to hire the lawyer to represent the defendant. And so I talked to my partner and I said, we, we can't get off. We got to fight this and we got to do it for free. And my partner said, you're right. We can't get off. So we, we took that case for free. Uh, the judge uh, fortunately gave us the expenses, but we tried that case for free. He was the youngest murder defendant in Texas history. When we finally got it to trial, we used 1,200 jury panel members to get a jury of 12, I'm sorry, 1,700 jury panel members to get a panel of 12. It took three months to pick the jury. At the trial, there's a Texas law that says that a psychologist can testify about the state of mind of a defendant in a murder case as to why he did what he did. I know what the law is because Racehorse Haynes is the one who made that law. And I worked on that case and um, we briefed it. We had an expert who was going to testify about it. And the prosecutor argued that the law says it's a reasonable man theory, not a reasonable child theory. Therefore, it's not admissible. And I said, your honor, that's silly. And if you go with this and he gets convicted, which he will, this case will be reversed and it'll be reversed on that point. The judge, by the time we went to trial, was a brand new judge. It was his first trial. Biggest case, very first jury trial, unprepared for all this stuff. And he thought about it, went in the back, obviously made some calls, comes back, and says, well, I'm going to go with him. I'm sorry, but your motion is denied. I said, okay, just remember what I said. And it, they found him guilty. Case was reversed on that point. 
the day I found out that it was reversed, I went over to his courtroom and it was packed. Opened the door and it was packed. You remember those EF Hutton commercials? I opened that door and everybody stopped talking and they looked at me. I said, I just came by to gloat. He said, get my chambers. <laughs> and we, we've become great friends. And he, he knows he made a mistake. Um, Texas law says that in a juvenile case, if you reverse the case, they have to let him out. So we got him out and um, got the case resolved uh, for a probation by, at that point. And he, he was almost 18, so he served two months of probation. And he went, he graduated from high school early and graduated from college. And I haven't talked to him in several years, but he's doing fine. Well, that's just goes to show you one, that maybe that, uh, that judge should have listened to you just a little bit better. And two, that again, that people do bad things in a, in a split instance, there's that, that doesn't mean you write people off. Definitely. Definitely. When it comes to uh, uh, a minor and, and most, most people there, but uh yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed speaking with you for sure. Um, I do want to kind of give you another chance. This is normally where I kind of tell people to throw out their connection points and stuff like that. I don't know that that's necessarily where we're, I mean, throw out, I guess, anything you might want to want to talk about, whether it's, I definitely want you to mention um, the, the foundation again, but any connection points that you, that you have that you want to share. Well, so there's, there's, there's three Three connection points. Um, uh, TriticoRainy.com is uh, my law firm, and we're ready to uh, help you anywhere anywhere you need our help. Um, um, the MariaTritico.com is, of course, my foundation for my daughter. And then my wife and I have just recently purchased a wedding venue that uh, is my uh, retirement income since I'm <laughs> easing out, and that's the the grand texana.com. And so check that out. If you're, if you're anywhere in the country, you can come down here and we will put on your wedding for you. And it's the grand texana.com. So come on down. We'll put on your wedding. We just purchased this property and the people were retiring. So they booked no weddings. I got any date you want open and I will book your wedding. <laughs> come on down. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I, I wasn't sure what connection points you were, would have, but I didn't think a wedding venue was going to be a part of it. So I'm glad That's I right. asked. I got to ask. The last question I want to ask you, and I normally kind of save this till till the end because it would make for an awkward, awkward interview for the entire time is, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that have, you know, kind of a one thing that people know them quite well for, whether it's sometimes it's been a a movie or a one hit wonder song. This obviously is a, a very big case. How, I guess, what is your thought process now? You know, you've, that was 25 years ago. You've done a ton since then, been very successful since then. What is, how do you feel when everyone just wants to keep talking to you about this? We've talked an hour about one case back in the nineties when you've done so much since then, do you kind of look at it as, Hey, this is kind of what's, uh, you know, what, what's continued to put food on the table. What's gotten me the, the, you know, the, the TV thing, or are you like, I I'm ready to quit talking about this. I, I think people that uh, say, I don't want to talk about that anymore. Are crazy. Mm -hmm. um, you, this is, you, you did something that, that is notable and it's something that, that people are interested in. And as long as people want to ask you about it, do it. I was, I was at an event one day and I was standing talking to this uh, I don't know, some guy, we were just standing there chit-chatting 
And about four or five people came up to me in a row and asked me for a picture or an autograph or whatever. And uh, he said, uh, do you ever get tired of that? I said, nope. I said, the day they stop asking is the day my career is over. <laughs> I said, so I am not tired of it. And it's the same thing with this. I mean, um, I'm very proud of what I did for Tim McVeigh. Uh, I'm very proud of what I did for our country and for the Constitution. And I don't shy away from it at all. Um, I will, I'll do it again um, in a heartbeat. And there's just no, there's, there's no reason to shy away from it ever. Absolutely. Again, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much. You bet. So that was my interview with Chris Tredico, just an amazing, amazing man. Um, you know, I say that every week um, because all of my guests are, are just fantastic, and I appreciate all of them for agreeing to join me. But, man, I, I think Chris just kind of sits on a, a totally uh, totally different pedestal than, than me and, and most people. Just the I, – I don't even really know how to say it. Just the compassion he has um, – just his, his dedication to you know the legal profession, his dedication to you know the Constitution and upholding that in, in every sense of the word. Uh, we we talked to him, of course, about you know the the Oklahoma City bombing and his representation of Timothy McVeigh. Uh, but this week he talked also about the the tragedy in his own life with his uh, his daughter Maria and her her murder. You know, as a, with a stray bullet, just a completely crazy crazy incident um it's a senseless murder um when you know she had so many uh great things going and and just doing some amazing things and i know chris uh with his uh maria tritico foundation is going to continue that legacy um uh, chris was was very recently in the news again uh, i don't want to to kind of mess this up i'm going to add the article I'm in the show notes, um, but uh, my my summary my summary here and it, it may be a little bit a little bit off, but just kind of another mind blowing thing with Chris is um, with his his daughter Maria, um, she was was murdered uh, a few years ago, I believe at the end of 2020, and uh, so it takes a little while for for cases to happen, of course, and uh, Chris was recently in the um you know the the news because the and again this is me paraphrasing and i'm going to put the article but uh, my understanding was um the the murderer had been had been caught it was a teenager and his attorney was not doing a, a great job and uh the you know the the teen's grandmother was was upset about what uh what was transpiring and how you know her grandson who who did kill uh, Maria Tritico, uh, or you know, is is c- accused of that, um, was not getting fair representation, um, and um, you know, Chris, this is where he came in, and and just his his dedication to the law, he actually um, went to court and you know stood with the the grandmother and said that you know this murder deserves fair representation. This this person who is accused of of killing his daughter, um, he he stood with with the the grandmother and said, you know, he, the the murderer, uh, the accused, uh, deserves fair representation. 
I, I, I don't even really know what to, to say to that. That is completely putting um, you know, your principle, uh, you know, first and foremost, and just I, I, it just shows the kind of person that, that Chris Tredico is, just an amazing, amazing person. Um, I, I don't know. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost just, it, it's really, it's, it, this is mind-blowing to me. This is something that um, I, I, I really think that we're, you know, we're all lucky to have, have, uh, have heard from, from Mr. Tredico, just a, uh, an inspiring person. That's, that's truly what, what uh, Chris Tredico is. I, uh, I don't have any more words to, to say to that. Just I, I can't fathom what he went through to be able uh, to do that. Um, but uh, it just shows the, the, you know, the compassion and the um, moral grounding that he has. I, I am just, I'm kind of in awe. I'm in awe of him, to be honest with you. Um, but to, to move on from, from that, um, do check him out. If you need any legal representation in Texas or, or anywhere else, um, you know, I, I sure hope you don't. I hope everything is going going well. But should you, should you need legal representation for, for a happy thing or maybe something that's not, man, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of a, a better person than uh, Chris Tritico and, and uh, anyone who is, is partnered with him, like uh, Mr. Rainey, I'm sure is a, a great person as well. So his, uh, his law office um, website is going to be in the show notes. Uh, he talked about that wedding venue amazing person to speak with i'm sure um, working with him and and uh, the staff of that venue if you are wanting to uh, plan a wedding will be an amazing thing too um, so go check that out go give him uh you know all of the all of the uh support that you can there um go go check out that foundation um as of this recording, I'm unable to find the foundation website. I'm going to work on that. If I can't find it, it's going to be in the show notes. Um, of course, go uh, go check us out. Follow us on Not in a Huff podcast on Instagram. Uh, Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff on Facebook, jacksonhuff.com, all those places. Give us a five-star review on Apple and on Spotify. Always appreciate that. Um, go write a review on Apple. Appreciate that even more. Uh, what an amazing guest. Uh, so glad that uh, he was the, the person who kind of broke my, uh, I guess, that streak of just having shorter interviews one, you know, one week. Um, no way I could have cut anything out that uh, Mr. Tritico said this week. Amazing, amazing, amazing person. And uh, I know he's, he's going to continue doing amazing things. Um, inspiring person, a great guy. And uh, uh, it was an honor to speak with him. Um, But uh, we'll see you next week. I'm uh, sure to have another great guest uh, next week as well. So uh, we'll see you then. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think. Or, hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.